Welcome everybody to the White Noise Podcast. Tonight is a special show and we are tackling what resilience is and the ancient philosopher's version of it. And tonight's guest is none other than DNA. DNA, brief introduction. I think most of the people know already who you are. Yes. Um, so my name is DNA Harley. Um, I have a PhD in philosophy from Western University, Canada. And my area of specialization is ancient philosophy. So my thesis was on Aristotle's theory of moral education. Um, so this is in my alley, so to speak. <laughs> well, it's good to be in your alley and hopefully we won't get stabbed in it. Uh, do you <laughs> know, now, <laughs> quick one. Um, so you've, 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 you've got a, a PhD in uh, ancient philosophy and in thinking. Um, how has this helped you in your everyday life for interest's sake you would say um i would say that so my natural uh, so it's all about what your i think it has it does come down to what your natural temperament is my natural temperament is to be believe it or not incredibly passionate doesn't always come across like that i know many people would be very surprised but that's true i'm incredibly passionate very emotional about things um and i think that how philosophy has benefited me is that it's given me the ability to take a step back and put things in a specific kind of perspective where I can use my reason to not, it's not to undermine your emotions, but it's to essentially just understand them better and to interrogate where your emotions are coming from and whether essentially the belief that's grounding your emotions is rational or irrational. And as I've and and look, that's not just going to come with intellectual development in an, in an, um, in in terms of education. It's going to come with your experience and 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 your maturity and in 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 a lot of respects. But I would say that by developing my reason uh, in a very disciplined and a very focused kind of way for like over a decade. Yes. Um, I have developed the capacity to be, to essentially distance myself from my emotions at times, and uh, not always. Obviously, there are times when my emotions will get the better of me, like every person. But yes. a lot of the time, even in the moment, I can distance myself from my emotions and I can rationally assess what's happening and I can decide whether I'm going to give in to my emotions because I think that they're reasonable. Or I can decide to to not do that because I think that they are unreasonable. Um, and again, I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But I would say that that's how philosophy and studying philosophy has benefited me in the long run. Excellent. Now, jumping from philosophy straight to resilience. Um, now, there's probably a lot of definitions out there. Maybe I'll start there. Mm. Um, I, I think... The kind of people we get these days that uh, feel they are perpetual victims, um, that sulk a lot, that don't get a lot done on a daily basis, that complain about how unfair society is, is, is in my estimation, pretty much a product of, of what we had with the attendance trophies, coddling of children, parents not actually you know, giving their children any mm. challenges or anything. They just kind of wing parenthood and ch leave children to their own devices. And they don't actually actively develop their characters, their morals, their values. 
Now we're mm-hmm. kind of sitting in a situation where we get a lot of adults that can't even and can't get shit done in an efficient way. And a lot of people complaining about how the system is rigged against them, but they don't look inwards. And what I've realized with COVID and a few experiences in my own life is we've become very reliant on, 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 on some systems. Like if I take the, we don't grow our own food anymore. We don't produce anything anymore to sustain ourselves. We rely hopefully on, on, on retailers, wholesalers, and, and other people mm-hmm. to provide for us. And with the whole advent of COVID and what we've seen with the state overreach and everything, I've realized the actual value of producing your own and having some skills at, in your back pocket for when times get tough that you can actually produce some goods of your own Mm-hmm. add some value and have a thick skin if things get a bit tough because we saw a lot of people crumbling the moment they weren't allowed out um under various pressures yeah. they were not taking away from the pressures that they they, they were and, and was inflicted by government but yes. i think a resilient society is much better able to to take pushback and take adversity and propel yeah. themselves forward and not stopping at an obstacle but finding a way around that obstacle and mm-hmm. actually conquering it to better yourself and actually the more you do that the more you get into the habit of not seeing obstacles you just see it as a temp you have to think around that obstacle and you have to think how you will overcome that and with that kind Mm -hmm. of mindset you actually breed people that are excellent at what they do they are resilient and they actually always move forward they don't blame society they don't blame anyone else they look Mm -hmm. for their failures, they look inward if they do fail and they ask themselves, how can I move forward and how can I better myself? And I think yep. the net product of that is is people that actually take responsibility and move us all forward in the long run instead of yeah. dragging everyone down to the lowest common denominator. That's kind of my resilience mindset. And I think it, it, it starts internally. And the mm-hmm. moment you start getting that mindset, you manifest it outward. So that's when you start, like the moment your mindset is right, you start going, you do martial arts, you go for your firearm license, you grow your own food. All these things start manifesting because you've got the right mindset. So that's my kind of, you're going to be the philosopher in this conversation. I'm going to be that pragmatic person. And I'm also going to kind of ask a few questions. If you go a bit above our mere mortal heads, I'm going to pull you back a bit and interrogate you. So that's my humble intro on resilience and kind of why it's important. You give us the philosophers and your own practical example. I mean, look, I mean, whenever you're talking about any topic, philosophers have a lot of different opinions on the answer to that question. So there's 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 never a definitive answer. So I can only ever speak to what I think and and what I agree with and people can always go and google the literature I mean it's there it's not it's not inaccessible even I know there's some papers that you can't get access to unless you're part of a a university but there's a lot of stuff you can get access to so you know I really recommend that people just go and google this stuff um, if they're interested in different definitions but I think that like you've pointed out Resilience is multifaceted, so it's not just about in 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 uh, in terms of having a psychological resilience. So that's in sense of like psychologically, can you bounce back from bad things that happen to you? Um, so you have actual coping strategies that allow you to handle when when bad things happen to you. You can actually, for example, put that in perspective, and you can find a way to not give in to like you've pointed out victimhood 
mentality or, or feelings like that. So like depression, anxiety. So all the things that would prevent you from moving on from that event. But I agree with you. I think it's more than that. It's not just about when, for example, you go through a breakup, which is, which is as anyone has experienced, it's, it's terrible. But uh, in terms of your physical, even physical resilience, like building yourself up to be physically more competent, Again, that's being able to face physical adversity. So in every way, it's taking seriously the fact that life is not always going to go your way. And I think that one of the biggest mistakes that was made in the 90s with the helicopter parenting movement, which is what it's been called, is that it was a move towards trying to, because there was this affluence. So it was the first time where it was possible, so maybe the 80s and the 90s, it was the first time it was possible to protect your children from almost any sort of adversity. And so it was essentially, so it's, I suppose in some sense you can't blame them because it was the first time this experiment was run where they thought, okay, what would happen if we protected our children from almost any sort of adversity, whether it was physical, emotional, psychological, whatever it may have been. And so as it, it's clear now the evidence is out and it was a monumental failure because almost every child that was a product of that time that was coddled in that way so I wasn't coddled in that way but I know a lot of children who were coddled in that way and it had terrible repercussions because essentially they'd never built the resilience to be able to cope with, with the realities of life and it's not to say that you should just feed your kids to the wolves and sort of just, you know, like lock them out at night and see whether they survive. Obviously not. But you can't protect your kids from everything. And to try and do that is doing them a disservice. And I think that in terms of ancient philosophy, ancient philosophers understood this in some ways better than anyone. And even though they don't explicitly talk about resilience as a topic, it's built into everything that they say about moral development. And that's where, that's why I've also been drawn to their ethical theories is because they are constantly preoccupied with strengthening and developing the soul. And so for them, the journey of self-development is constant. And I think in that regard, even though they have different ideas of how that self-development should take place and what it looks like, um, they all have a belief in building resilience. Um, so we'll we'll get to that. But ultimately, I agree with you. I think that resilience is basically building this capacity to take knocks, uh, whether they be physical or emotional. You need to have you need to learn that that capacity. Excellent. I yeah for sure. Uh, I mean, like you meant. Sorry. And kind of brought into that. Insufficiency. I, I lost you there for a bit, you know. Can you just repeat that quickly? So the other concept I think is important and it is very prevalent in ancient philosophy is self-sufficiency. Um, so it's the idea that um, in to what extent are you dependent for your virtue on external circumstances? And different schools have different answers to that question but I think that you mentioned that specifically being self-sufficient and I think that 
building resilience partly is building self-sufficiency. It's saying that I'm not dependent on external factors and external events for my happiness, for my well-being, for because you're going to have mm. to accept that the world's not always going to go your way. There's no, there's, 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 there are things that are out of your control. And there needs to be an internal that, locus of control. If you, the moment yeah. you put the control externally, that's again where we go back and where you blame society, you blame the systems, you blame your race, you start blaming everything else, but you're not mm -hmm. looking inward and saying like, what can I control and what can I do better to better myself and everyone around me? Yes. And we seldomly see that, by the way. So, um, yes. yeah, just an interesting observation in the times we live in. Yes, and we, yeah, exactly. And we've we and the reason we're talking about this, I mean, presumably there would be no other reason for us to talk about this in such explicit terms, unless there was a need for it. And it seems to me that there is a need for it because we've entered an age where, like you say, the locus of control is not internal; it's external. It's always society's fault. It's always my parents' fault. It's always someone else's fault that I'm in the situation that I'm in. And that's what I love about ancient philosophy is that for the most part, in every way, they concede that life is crap. In most respects, life is shit. But it doesn't mean that you can't be happy. It doesn't mean that you can't be virtuous. Those are choices you make. It's not because it can't happen. So Excellent. I think that's sorry. Um, hmm? Just just conclude that. Sorry, I interrupted you there. So no, so just it, for me, that's exactly why I was drawn to it. Is because I think that um, in terms of how they view the world, it's much more holistic than and and early modern philosophy is also a lot more holistic. But the moment we, I, in my opinion, my humble opinion, I know there are a lot of philosophers who would disagree with me. But in my opinion, the moment we entered contemporary philosophy, I feel like we lost sight of the big picture and we became too specialized. And it, it was detrimental to the to the field. But that's a separate discussion. That's a separate a new episode. Okay, so segue us into tonight's episode. What do you want to talk to about, about how you're going to break this down? And then let's get to it. Cool. So what I want to discuss is, so I want to first go into a brief overview of the the main um, schools of thought in ancient philosophy. So I'm not going to cover all of them, but that's just because we have time limitations. So I'll be covering Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, and the Stoics. And what I want to do is I want to give you a brief overview of their moral theory. And then I want to explain how that relates to resilience, because as I said, they don't ever explicitly mention resilience, although I do believe that resilience is built into their way of thinking about moral development and virtue, which is a specific state of the soul. And that only comes about through you actually developing yourself and you choosing to do so. Um, so if you're happy for me to, to get going. So Please let's proceed. start with Socrates. Let's start with Socrates. Okay, so Socrates is an interesting case precisely because we don't actually have um, documentation of his own writings and his own thinking because whenever he did engage in philosophy, it was in person with an interlocutor and those conversations weren't recorded. So Plato was his pupil. And interlocutor? Was that someone he engages with? 
Yes, so that's the term you use for whoever he's talking to and in every dialogue, and that's why every dialogue is a dramatic representation of that. So Plato's dialogues is where he tries to represent Socrates, his teacher, and then he also tries to develop his own positive position. So we've got this very kind of hmm. interesting dynamic between Socrates. So we still have to figure out like how much of that is what Socrates thought and how much of that is what Plato actually thought. And so when we're talking about the early dialogues, we're generally uh, scholars are comfortable with saying that that's what Socrates thought. But when it gets to the middle and the later dialogues, it presumably is more what Plato thought. And that's where Plato develops his positive conception of moral theory. And notably, the, the Republic is the most famous instantiation of that. Um, okay. So I'm going to talk about Socrates as Plato conceives of him. So you need to always remember that it's through a lens. It's through Plato's lens. It's not that we have independent uh, evidence of what Socrates thought. Um, but the one thing we can say about Socrates is that he had two kind of positions. One was in the early dialogues that, which is the famous thing about Socrates, is that he proclaimed to know nothing. And when he talked to anyone, he was basically just asking them questions. And this is the Socratic method where he was never claiming anything. He was always just curious about what other people thought. So he would sort of ask them, so what do you think virtue is? And the interlocutor would give an account of virtue. And then he would start asking them questions and be like, well, you know, if you think this, doesn't this follow, which means you can't think this. And before you know it, He's cornered the person so bloody brilliantly and almost every dialogue in the early dialogues ends in aporia, which means that it ends in an impasse. So it's inconclusive. It's like, this is what virtue is. And then at the end of the dialogue, it's like, there's no answer to that because if you go down the one road, you hit this contradiction. If you go down the other road, you hit this contradiction. And the whole point of it was to say that you don't, you don't actually know what you think you know. And I think that, that in that sense, it was the project of like um, humbling does, people. Do, does, humbling. It also, does it also mean, sorry, you know, does that also mean that most people, even though they've got a like belief set, that they inherently in some way or the other always contradict themselves, even with yes. their core values in place? Yes. And they don't know that's the it. kind of, yeah. We, we had this conversation and, yeah. and, and we actually took a lot of my stuff to its logical end conclusion, as you like to say. And it's like, oh, yeah. well, there's a contradiction. <laughs> how, how do we and reconcile exactly. this? I, so I, so, I so you and Socrates, the, you went also. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I see what you I, did there now. Thank you. <laughs> Go I on. Thank the you. Socratic method and I just asked you a bunch of questions and then you were like, oh, shit. Yeah, actually, that doesn't make sense. And that's what he did. He didn't have to actually like be confrontational. He just kind of drew people out and showed them that exactly that the thing that they think they know is something they actually don't know at all. And and so that was the one method was to essentially just illustrate that point that you you actually don't think don't know the things you know you think you know. And then the other strategy he used was more a positive account was more didactic in the sense that it was supposed to teach us about morality. And in that regard, Plato 
uh, Socrates was a virtue ethicist in the sense that he also believed that the path to so for him though virtue consisted in knowledge so what that so he was an intellectualist what that means is to just like strip it what that means is that he thinks that if you so you know if you think that uh, you have a conflicting desire that chocolate is good for you but you know it isn't so you know that you shouldn't eat the chocolate but you want to eat the, eat the chocolate his view was that if you still feel that pull, it's because you haven't properly appreciated why chocolate isn't good for you. And the moment that you do properly appreciate it, so essentially the moment you have complete knowledge, you won't be motivated to, to actually, you know, um, go for it. You won't be motivated to actually... You won't it. crave it essentially. Yeah, so he actually thinks that knowledge is sufficient for motivation so you won't ever have this conflict in you where you know something so if you think that something is the good you will pursue it and so for socrates he thought that essentially virtue and especially so we've got the virtues so it would be like justice moderation or temperance courage all the sort of standard essentially all the standard kind of christian virtues they come from ancient philosophy so those would be the standard and wisdom was considered for socrates to be the the pinnacle of those because for him virtue consisted in knowledge and if you desired something so if you still desired the chocolate it was basically because you had ignorance basically because you didn't fully understand why the chocolate was bad for you because if you did you wouldn't desire it which is counterintuitive because most of us have experienced this where we know that we know that the chocolate is bad for us. And we know our we ex-boy and girlfriends it. are bad for us, but we still exactly. want them. But Just still, after the like, breakup, ah, <laughs> I want that right now. <laughs> I still want it. So, yeah, so that was, um, so that's, so, and the consequence of that kind of intellectualism um, is this idea that virtue is knowledge. And that's not what we're going to see with other ancient philosophers. So it's good to note that. Um, and then virtue. Oh, this is the other thing. Virtue is sufficient for happiness. So it's, so I have to here explain the necessary and sufficient distinction. So when we say that something is necessary for, so let's say virtue is necessary for happiness. What we mean is that you need virtue to be happy but it's not the only thing you need to be happy. Presumably in the case of Aristotle, for example, you also need things like wealth, beauty, reputation, for example. And only once you have those things would you have the necessary and sufficient conditions. So you'd have exactly what you need and enough so that you, would, you can say you have happiness. But Is there a parallel to Maslow's hierarchy of needs there? But just in a bit differently phrased way or i think the easiest way to put it and just so that people can sort of grasp it is uh if you think of like lighting a match then you'd say for example that the oxygen is necessary to the match being lit but it's not sufficient because you still need the flame being struck so the match being struck for the flame to light and so you have to think of what is required but it's not enough for that thing to come about and what is actually just enough for that thing to come about? And so we yeah. draw the distinction between what's necessary. So what's 
required and what's sufficient. So essentially, if this thing was there, we'd have what we wanted. So we'd have. So for, we, for, we had, for sorry, sorry, just to yeah? add to that. Sorry to interrupt you, but mm -hmm. it's also like a, a good meter of that. If I have to use a very practical example as well. Mm. At some stage, you level out, then you'll be happy because all your needs are met. And mm. then after that, it doesn't, if, if you are Jeff Bezos, fucking wealthy, that's way beyond your threshold. There is a certain extent and a certain level where wealth does bring you happiness because mm. all your bills are pa paid. You don't have that constant um, stress on you that like, shit, I can't pay stuff or I'm wanting yeah. or I can't have a nice coffee machine or whatever the stress there might mm. be. Okay, that's first world problems, but like legit ones. <laughs> so at, at a certain level, you actually like, you earn enough that you have everything you need and you can live comfortably. And yeah. then when you reach that level, anything more than that won't necessarily make you more happy. Um, yeah. Lots of studies have proven this. So yes. yeah, sorry, just my five yes, cents. So you've reached, you've reached that that point of sufficiency. Mm. Now it's just kind of it's like now you're in abundance, and when you get yeah. to abundance, I mean, it it won't make you more happy. You'll have a temporary like high when you buy something. You'll get that mm. dopamine hit, and then eventually you just level out mm. again. So, so yeah. so importantly for Socrates, like having knowledge is sufficient to have virtue and that's not we're not going to see that with other ancient philosophers that's why i'm pointing it out just because we also want to draw the distinctions and that's going to be one of them so but how does socrates's moral theory relate to resilience so remember i said that you know he thinks there are a number of virtues you need to actually acquire and one of them is moderation and so he does actually talk about so the person for example who loses his son and it's be real in ancient Greece it was very likely given the wars and the time they were living in that something terrible was going to befall you uh, like there was probably no escape from that and so Socrates does say in in the early dialogues uh, sorry this is like already in the Republic so we're already getting into gray area whether it's Socrates or Plato's view but anyway um, so but he does think that if you, for example, lose your son, it doesn't serve you well to give in to those feelings of despair, depression, and ev sadness and everything you're going to feel because he still believes that ultimately to be virtuous, you need to be moderate. And that means part of that is using your reason to put your emotions in place, to basically say to your emotions, this is an unreasonable amount of grief to experience in relation to this event don't um, they use the the whole thing about like you should think what your son would want for you would he would, would he like for you to be grieving as badly and and the answer is no and that's how they help get the logic to that to say okay cool probably or, i'm i don't i'm i i'm pretty sure yeah somewhere in in the stories in the in yeah probably somewhere it's mentioned i mean that wouldn't surprise me that's part of the exercise of trying to put what's happening to you into perspective and i think that reason and because he believes in reason as ardently as as he does he thinks that reason is basically the the guiding alignment and it should dictate to you how everything else plays out and there are four ways in which he thinks that by listening to your reason 
you can actually learn to put that stuff in perspective. So when you're facing adversity, how do you put that, how do you essentially train yourself to not give in to those emotions that are so overwhelming? And remember, resilience is not about you not feeling emotions intensely. You do feel them intensely. There's nothing wrong because obviously people are different. And some people like myself are more passionate. So you're not, you are going to feel emotions intensely. It's not about that. It's about whether you have the capacity to then take a step back from those emotions and then use that to overcome what you're facing. And so one, one principle is there's no way to be certain whether the events that befall us will turn out to be good or bad for us. So there's that perspective of, look, often, and Jordan Peterson talks about this all the time, bad things happen to you. But at the end of the day, you have no idea with the, at the end of the road whether that's a good thing or a bad thing because often the things that you think at the time are the worst things that could have happened to you are the things that ultimately led to really good things or at least ultimately led to you developing yourself in ways that you didn't think you, you were ever capable of. So it tests you maybe in ways that you don't feel like you're ready but it gives you an opportunity to grow that you otherwise wouldn't have had. So that, that, that that's a good point because there's a common thread with most successful people. They usually went through a barrage of shitty experience like yes. um, it, like Joe Rogan, uh, Peterson mm. grew up very mm. harshly. Um, yes. Most of the philosophers yeah. here that we're going to reference tonight, Marcus yes. Aurelius lost several children. Um it's it's incredible and 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 that kind of develops some form of resilience and then these people become quite badass and what they can and cannot take and they just forge ahead then because once you have i think yeah we'll we'll talk about this a bit later but and i think i think the mistake people make is that they think that and i think that's a cop out is to think that those times when those people forge ahead is just because you know they were born that way they were lucky no they weren't born that way they made a choice they were like you know what this is what i'm faced with either i'm going to succumb or i'm going to press on and the idea of virtue and this is what i will say all the all the ancient philosophers have in common is that they do believe that the only way to a good life is to strengthen the soul essentially that's what they're saying is make your soul strong like make it something that can't easily be knocked down where reason guides your action and your emotions don't get in the way of that and that's essentially the overarching message that i think is the golden thread that runs through every single account of virtue um and i think that that's incredibly useful because it's true that it, that is the only way you overcome things by choosing to do that it's not something that you it's not the special kind of grace you're given by god it's something that you say to yourself, I don't want to be this kind of person who wallows, who, you know, thinks I'm pathetic. I don't want to be that person. Um, so Socrates also mentions that we don't gain anything by essentially giving into misfortune. So if you think of, think of any situation where you gave into your baser desires, where you were like, I want to wallow, I want to be suicidal i want to be you know a victim i want to all of those things did it ever make it better like no 
for the most no. part, it just makes everything worse because you're basically all you're doing is you're giving yourself permission to amplify those negative emotions, and you're that, giving that them goes back to, to yeah that, that that goes back to temperance. You you just let go yes. and you wallow and you really like you double down. You either get so depressed or, or suicidal or, or something and or drunk. Fuck, you get drunk and then you get suicidal or you know that that knock-on effect and the next day you don't ha remember half of it and you're like okay so what happened last night that's an awkward conversation to have and that that's terrible that's never fun for anyone absolutely and then the other thing is that the ancients given the magnitude of the crises they were often facing and we're talking about like massive wars and the potential of their civilization being destroyed and their city being attacked. And another way of putting that in perspective is to say, like, look, whatever happens here in this very minute instance, in the scheme of things, is pretty irrelevant. I look, so I'm not someone who will say, look, you're when you're going through something terrible, it's irrelevant. I don't think that. But I do also think that there is a place for saying to yourself at some point, you know what, enough is enough. It's not like I'm facing, you know, an army invading my city. Okay, I just went through a breakup. Like, go listen to some Adele and fucking recover. Like, it's not the end of the world. Like, life will carry but, on. But, you know, I've got real problems. I can't get Kayla Woolies. It's like I can't make my smoothie. <laughs> Sorry, that's a that's a first world problem. Uh, but but people really lose their minds at shit like that. And and I'm always mm. when people go and they I, I like to call it Karen out. It's it's ridiculous. Like they 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 wallow about such bullshit. And I'm like, don't you have real problems? <laughs> it's like really. Um, no, but, I but, but, Right. Yeah, go. No, like, but but then you should also ask yourself, what kind of people am I surrounding myself with? I always hear these things in mm. passing because I don't have people like that in my life because I have no time for people like that. Like, I I don't I don't allow that kind of crowd. So, <laughs> I also think look, like with a lot of this stuff, like time, these abilities come with maturity. It's not something that you're. <laughs> It's not something that you're just born with. I mean, like when you go through breakups when you're younger, presumably it's a lot more painful. You haven't been through it before. You haven't felt those emotions before. But then as you age, you kind of go, okay, I felt this before. I know it's going to pass. And then you're able to hopefully put it in perspective and sort of be, become better. And so I think the important thing is to view this not as a, it's not a, it's not a, like we want to think with like, you know, these diets where it's like within a week you'll lose like so many pounds if you do this magical thing. Like development in terms of your psyche is just not like that. You have to consider it over a period of time saying to yourself, I want to be more resilient. I'm going to build this capacity over time. Uh, and that's how you need to look at it because it's not something that's going to come in one fell swoop. And I think the Stoics are the best at kind of articulating that point is that you need to actually discipline yourself in terms of certain activities, not just like we'll see with Socrates, not just thinking things through intellectually, but engaging in certain activities on a day-to-day -day basis that will 
give you the habits you need to be able to be more resilient. But we'll we'll get to that. And then finally, you have to consider the fact that a lot of the emotions you feel, as powerful as they are and as justified as they may be, it's not about, I'm not questioning whether they are legitimate, but they do stand in the way of you conducting a rational analysis of what's going on. So, and that's because a lot of us have persistent complexes and trauma that we carry with us from our childhoods. And so we so, basically get in our own way. Yeah. So those things will stick with us. And when people do certain things, those things are activated. And so those traumas and those emotions are basically all that you can see. But that's exactly why Socrates advocates for developing virtue as a whole, because it is partly that capacity to put your emotions in their place and say, yes, I'm feeling this. It's very intense, but it's not what's going on here. And then being able to distance yourself. And it's not easy. It's like it's a very difficult thing. But essentially, that's the goal. That's what you're aiming for. Um, and let me just see if there's anything else I want to say about Socrates. So he does talk about that we should employ a rational problem-solving response. So essentially for him, obviously, given that he feels about virtue the way that he does, that it always has to do with um, knowledge, you need to develop the capacity to conduct a rational analysis of the situation. And presumably that's the thing. I it's not necessarily true. Just let me put say that because we're going to move on to other accounts of moral theory that might not be sitting well with people so let's just say that for socrates you can conduct this rational analysis and it's going to put your emotions in perspective um yeah and also the other part of it is thinking about and we've mentioned this is that if this is the thing that's happened to me how is it an opportunity for development so how is it an opportunity for me to make myself stronger rather than wallowing in my weakness or my victimhood. And it's not easy to do. It's by no stretch of the imagination is it easy to do. But that capacity can have a massive impact on how you actually um, process traumatic events. So that's it. That's Socrates. Bam. On to um, Uncle Plato. Plato. Okay, so Plato is Socrates' pupil. And Plato develops a different conception of the soul. So he doesn't think that the soul is so determined by knowledge and so determined by this cognitive state where you go, if I know this thing, it's enough for my, for my motivation to kick in to pursue it. So he doesn't think that. So the way he explains this concept of the tripartite soul and Aristotle doesn't have that conception he doesn't think the soul splits into three he thinks the soul splits into two it's very interesting won't get into that now but Plato thinks that you have the tripartite soul so he compares it to a city so in the city you'd have the rational part which is the philosopher kings so they essentially have an understanding of 
reason and what what should happen in the city and they rule the city the warriors they occupy the spirited part of the soul so that's where you have your emotions and those emotions are often aiming at honor that's very complicated that's what my my phd thesis is on so i'm not going to get into that it's very very complicated um and then you've got the the people who are in charge of production so you've got the farmers the artisans those people and they represent the appetite so they represent the need for sex food and drink and for Ar uh, for plato this was a representation of the soul so in the soul you have the the rational faculty you have the emotional faculty and you have the appetitive faculty and that's how he actually explains that you can have this conflict you can have the rational capacity say to you this is what the good is this is what i should pursue but your appetite so let's say you really want to have sex with someone is saying that even though my reason is telling me you seriously shouldn't have sex with that person my appetite is going no i but i really want to. i'm gonna bang them anyway <laughs> anyway um, i'm just gonna do it anyway um and so that was and that's a it seems to be a more realistic account of what we actually experience when we so, so it's logic versus impulse basically yes. and so what moral virtue in virtue ends up being is bringing your impulses or your appetites and your spirit in line with what your reason demands so all that your reason is going to do is tell you this is the right action if you've developed it properly and now what you have to do is convince your spirit and your appetite that they need to go along with that and they need to not distract you to pursue other things and that's a uh, very try, difficult try, try try doing that after a night out when you're driving past the mcdonald's not to stop exactly and right and order 20 20 cheeseburgers <laughs> it's a difficult thing to do dna believe you me i've been through this i know these things <laughs> Okay. So that's that. Okay, and so that's um, Plato's, so that's in the Republic. And that's Plato's essentially his positive account of um, the soul and how a city ought to be governed. And for him, the political organization of a city, like I've said, at the head of that is the philosopher kings. And the philosopher kings are at the head of that because. And here's the part I don't think people often appreciate. Even though it sounds incredibly elitist, and I absolutely do not agree with Plato's Republic because it is so statist, I actually want to shoot myself in the head. Um, but at the end of the day, he also says that the philosopher kings have to put themselves through an awful lot to be considered the philosopher kings. And here's where the resilience aspect comes in, because they can't be the philosopher kings without going through an incredibly rigorous process of being trained. And this is the point where they develop and and like inhuman kind of resilience. Is this is this mental and physical and training and, and obviously when yes. I say mental, I'm I'm talking so about physical? the moral dimensions as well and emotional yes. levels. So everywhere. Go, so so they go very through, holistic. Absolutely. So they go through various stages. They start from when they're little, very young. They start going.
going through physical training and they through gymnastics and physical exercise. I mean, think of 300, like the Spartans, like the way those children are from a very young age expected to be physically competent. That's like what Plato is expecting of the philosopher kings. Like they have to develop themselves physically then they have to develop themselves emotionally. And he thinks that they do that through music and poetry. They have to develop the appropriate um, emotional sensibilities. These are also moral sensibilities. Again, that's a very complex notion. I'm not going to get into that, but it's a very complicated idea. Um, and then beyond that, they have to develop themselves intellectually. And this is where they encounter the forms. And I'm going to give a very brief explanation of the forms. It's an incredibly complex notion. I'm not going to pretend that we're going to have the time to go through it here, but it's going to make it's the difference between Plato and Aristotle is that Plato believes in the forms and Aristotle doesn't believe in the forms. So Plato believes that there are these perfect instantiations of any specific quality. So if we talk about beauty, the form of beauty. Okay, let's talk about something else. Let's, let's use circularity. It's an easy example. So if we're talking about a circular object, there's a perfect instantiation of that object, which is circularity as such. So it is literally a perfect circle. And it doesn't exist in the experiential realm. It only exists beyond this realm, and only reason can access it. So the philosopher kings are the only ones who can contemplate the forms. But every instance of circularity, so every circular object we see in the world, is an instantiation of circularity as such, or the form of circularity. And the point of this is to ground, so the reason why he invokes the forms is because it grounds the existence of things. So for him, forms are being, and when they're instantiated in the world, it's becoming. So it's not perfect. So essentially, this, the form of circularity would be the perfect version of a circular object. And so it's the, him, it's the highest cognitive form that, yes. that, that you can conceive of. Yes. And, and only then we've got cheaper imitations in this realm about yes. circular ones because yes. having that perfect circular form is not always practical or it yes. just falls off the practicality of it and but yes and the form so the perfect instance of it is what grounds the imperfect instances of it metaphysically so the only reason that the imperfect versions exist is because there's this perfect version that exists in the world of reason and only the philosopher kings have been trained to access that through reason. And it's only through that contemplation of the forms that, and here's the important point, that they can in any way access the good. And the good is essentially what grounds the forms. So it's a very deep concept. And I'm not going to go into it here because it's incredibly complicated. So, so in other words, you, you're very much in shit when your philosopher king is a sociopath or a complete fucking psycho. But they wouldn't. <laughs> they wouldn't be because they would never get to that level. This is the point. The whole point of this program is what, what about okay, One episode we must talk about, Nero, I think it's Nero. Uh, yes. There was a complete tyrant, but he started off nicely and then later he became 
but but the signs were there even from a young age but but this is uh, yeah no. okay, well, there were so many tyrants at that time it's actually incredible but the point of what what plato was trying to to and of course this is an ideal okay it's not like of course uh, yes he yes there's no perfect it. recipe we know there's it's no like, utopia in this world and that's why i also question it because it's another utopia so that's why i also like and it's because it's so statist i'm like you know for example at some point he even considers that uh, the nuclear family should be destroyed and children should be taken from their parents to be put in these kind of like um communal parenting facilities and, and you know what i mean it's like it's in it's extreme it's extreme you, you call it communal parent facilities i call it spurs playing areas the, that's exactly <laughs> where they take those people yeah yeah exactly <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a more than, it's a modern children's gulag it's exactly that you just the two unhappy young parents come into a spur and they just send the children off they get hammered and argue the rest of the evening and have a fucking terrible time while the mm. children just plays and have a good five, 10 or 20 or half an hour yep, until their parents bail. That's nice. Yeah. At least they're ignorant of what's happening. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, so that's, so that's Plato. And then the, the respect in which it's related to resilience. Again, I would say, again, we're, we're crossing Socrates and, and Plato. So we can sort of drift into what Socrates said about resilience. But I think for me, what stands out about Plato is, again, like we were talking about at the beginning, it's this multifaceted notion of resilience that it's not just um, psychological, it's physical resilience. And for him, you could only qualify to be a philosopher king if you had gone through literally every physical, emotional and intellectual challenge that could ever fucking be put in your way and you conquered it. So, so rite of passage, and, and we've absolutely. lost that in modern times. There's no absolutely. more rites of passages. There's, I mean, unless you become a hunter, like even if you do your, if you, if you shoot your first antelope, in mm. in our tradition, you usually eat 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 the testicles raw, which is a great great way to be a man. But I mean, eating testicles where you are semi drunk on brandy, I I don't know if that's really a rite of passage because you're so enumerated and fucking drunk. Um, We've no, lost no, rites think... of passages in life, I think, and I th yeah, absolutely. We're paying a price for it. Absolutely, we are and really paying. Like... We're paying for it. And you and I talked about this, like, um, like James Hollis is a Jungian analyst, and he talks about this um, idea of rites of passage and the specific phases someone has to go through to become an adult. And we now, in in our modern day world, we think being an adult is playing a certain role. So becoming a wife or a husband, um, having children, having a specific job, we think those things are what it means to be an adult. And yes, so that's a terrible idea. That's terrible. fucking a terrible idea. Because people just, first off, what I see a lot is they fucking wing parenthood. And they are the exact Absolutely. same people that go into the spur, resent each other, they're just on their cell phones, and when they're not on their cell phones, they fucking verbally attack each other. And I only go to spur like when I when I got here, especially um, in in Durban. I needed a lot of Wi-Fi when I just got here. Didn't know the areas quite mm. well. Um, mm. I was just sitting there, and I'd work, and like I just see these young couples coming in. Fuck, they hate each other. Hey, those childrens are like the children is like rockets to the play area, and then the resentment begins. It's like. It's like yeah. you hear that fighting bell before a battle, like ding, ding, ding. And then they start going at each other. 
and then yeah. they order liquor and shots and then they like children that sedate themselves from the liquor and then they become more quiet and then they eat and they stuff their faces then they're very mm. quiet and then awkwardly like they, they 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 get the child at the table and then it's kind of like semi-peaceful and then they just go home but they still have that fucking empty look in their eyes i'm just like god damn it these people are not where they want to be in their lives like you can just <laughs> deduce this even because as an outsider, you can pick up that negative energy. Because the point of a rite of passage is to say you've faced adversity, you've overcome it, and you now deserve this place in society. And I think that what we've lost is this notion that by default you are part of society. And that never used to be the case. It used to be something you had to earn. You weren't just by default considered a member of society. You had to actually work to be considered a member of that society and to have a voice in that society. And now, so in some sense, and this is why ancient philosophers were so against democracy, because they could see that it was essentially mob rule. And they were absolutely opposed to that, because if you were in any way rational, and their notion of aristocratic was not what it became in Victorian England, which was basically like you had a lot of money. That's not what they thought ar aristocratic meant. Aristocratic was you are morally developed. So you were the kind of person, so it was a meritocracy. You were like developed to the point where you earned your place as an aristocratic. Um, again, these are ideals. I'm not saying that like, I mean, okay, there's a lot of historical objections people can give me and like, you know what, go fuck yourself because I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what, what the ideal was, what it was they were talking about. And to that extent, I do agree with it because I think that what we've lost is this this rite of passage where you earn your place in society and you earn a voice and a, and a, and a, um, legitimacy in terms of what your opinion means. It's not given to you. You have to prove that you're worth listening to. And we have absolutely lost that. And that's why we, we wonder why we don't have adults. It's like because we haven't trained them to be adults. They don't know what it means to be an adult. I don't even yeah. know if I know what it means to be an adult. I'm in my fucking 30s. I, I, I just, uh, yeah, like what, what's tax returns? Um, so, so, do you know, <laughs> I, I think we've we finished off Socrates, Plato. Let's move Aristotle. on to Aristotle. Of, cool. Aristotle like Afrikaans will be... people will call them Aristotle. Aristotle. No, that's Mexican, sorry. <laughs> um, okay, so Aristotle's big disagreement with Plato is on the forms. So he never bought into the forms as a metaphysical and epistemological reality. So he um, rejects that. But what he does think is that, again, he thinks that to be virtuous doesn't mean you're going to be happy. Because to be happy, you also need other goods. And these other goods are things like you need, you know, beauty, reputation, fortune, health, a bunch of other things. So he doesn't think virtue is sufficient for happiness. He thinks it's necessary for happiness, but it's not enough. You need other things too. And the other big difference is his argument towards virtue is not dependent on the forms. His argument towards virtue is to say, what function do humans have? So if you could reduce it, so if you say for some something like a like a flute, a flutist, like a, a flautist, flautist. It's like someone plays the flute. So in terms of what they're doing, their function is to play the flute well. 
that's what it means to be a flautist. But if you're talking about humans, what is it that they do well? So what is their function? And how he hones in on that is to say, well, what is the capacity that puts us apart from every other animal? And obviously it's our reason. Our ability to reason is what puts us apart from every other animal. So that is our function. So in virtue of that, we need to develop that to its utmost. And that for him is what virtue consists in, is becoming perfectly rational, but that also has implications for what your psychological dispositions are. And I think this is what I this is why I'm a virtue ethicist, is because unlike Kant, who is a deontologist, who basically thinks that Sorry, it just sounded like you just had a terrible swearing. You had a bit of um, uh, what is that 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 that's that that kind of vibe where you just swear? Asperger's, Tourette's. Tourette's. Yeah, it just sounded like (laughs) you had a Tourette's there. And then I just wanted to say, like, I don't care about playing flutes, but if someone plays mine, I won't complain. Uh, Please continue, Diana. I just had to really interrupt (laughs) you there with overtly toxic masculine jokes. I know. It's ridiculous. Come on. All these phallic symbols, left, right, and center. It's throwing me off. I can't even fucking focus right now. Fucking hell. Um, so when it comes to someone like Kant, uh, he's a deontologist. And so he thinks that what it means to be moral is to make the right decision. And you use the categorical imperative to decide what the right decision is. Uh Aristotle and ancient philosophers in general, they don't think that. They think that that being a good person is much more of a disposition. So it's not just about honing in on the right action. You have to have the right emotion to the right extent in the correct circumstances to be considered a moral person. So it's a very complex psychological disposition. So let's say, let's say someone does something unjust to you. You need to know what's the right action in response. How much anger should you feel in relation to what's been done to you? And under what conditions would you feel that? And if you don't have that, then you're not a moral person. because, And that's why being moral is not supposed to be easy. I think that's what people don't understand. Being moral is actually a very difficult thing. Because it means that in most cases, you're going to have to put aside what's convenient and what's easy to do the right thing. And yes, maybe at the beginning, you won't feel the right emotions to the right extent in the way that Aristotle says you should. But the whole point of being moral is that this is part of his theory, is that if you want to be moral, do it over and over and over and over again. And eventually, your sensibilities will kick in. And you will actually become moral. So it's kind of like the fake it until you make it. But at least you have to have the capacity to identify what is it you need to do. And that's, that's resilience. Because that's saying, even when my emotions are telling me I want to have this kind of reaction, my reason is telling me that's completely over the top. And it's not proportional to what's going on. So can I, I, can I play devil's advocate here? Of course. So, um, not 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 putting the sledgehammer to Christianity, but we've all seen a term I think we all know very well, being um, skynailach. It's it's being overtly 
virtuous all the time, but you but your actions completely contradict your level of how virtual you virtuous you think you are. Mm -hmm. So you will think that you are holier than thou art, but behind the scenes you are fucking up dramatically with, with how you really are. But every Sunday you go to church and you sit there and you're like, I'm a great person. And, mm. and it's not just like, it never sits well with me when people are like that. I like authentic people that are always consistent in what they do. Um, whether I'm going to them for a Saturday braai or I won't go to church with them, but but anyway, I, I go to them and I always kind of get a consistent image of them. I think yeah. um, there is something in our culture that we find that people are trying to be overtly. Actually, it's it's not just Christianity that falls into this. I mean, yeah, the far right. left as well, they yeah. virtue signal all the time and they're like, I'm not racist. I'm non-racial, and then they try, and then they fall in their own trap, and they kind of die there, or they, they, their own cannibalizes them because they're like, okay, cool, you're not this, but you've contradicted yeah. yourself here, and now we're going to have you for dinner. And I think that's probably a, a big honey trap for, for being virtuous as such that a lot of people fall into. But I don't think this is in line with the virtue, the, the virtue um the virtuous qualities that the ancients gave. I don't think yeah, what we're seeing manifesting in, in, in modern times is in line with that. Or if you can give some not. clarity on that. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Because in, in, in ancient philosophy, it's not performative. It's not about... And, and they do talk about this. I mean, the, the sophists are, are essentially their targets a lot of the time. Because the sophists are those who can communicate arguments in an incredibly persuasive way. But those arguments are fundamentally fallacious. But they can still make them sound so attractive that they can draw people in and they are so popular and they are basically perceived to be these paragons of virtue because they're so persuasive in how they put forward their arguments. And that's I are better than you are. Yeah. And that's it, and it, it, it becomes a it becomes a virtue competition. Yeah. And that's but the that's target. where, that's where, that's where that's, temperance come in. Doesn't it? Temperance needs yes. to like, you need to take five steps back and say, "Hey, Absolutely. what am I doing I was, here?" Yeah, I was going to say, like when you look at any of the social justice warriors, I mean, do you consider any of them to have temperance to any extent? No, absolutely not. Their reactions are so over the top; it's absolutely ridiculous. If you actually wanted to take anyone seriously, you would look at how is it that they respond to what you're saying? Are they actually responding to it with reason? Or are they just, you know, trying to have an emotional go at you because, you know, that's, you know, w what they're interested in? Um, and to that extent, absolutely not. The, the ancient philosophers were, in fact, having a go at precisely those people who were incredibly pretentious, pretended to the populace like they actually knew what they were talking about when it came to, to virtue and what virtue was. And that's exactly why Socrates in the early dialogues, most of his targets are sophists who come to the city and proclaim to have knowledge about one virtue or another. And the entire dialogue is where he is essentially corners them and explains to them why actually they don't know what they think they know. Um, and so that's exactly also why I was drawn to ancient philosophy is because for me, it's the epitome of authenticity. It has nothing to do with what you come across as. It has everything to do with how you live your life. Because if you are choosing 
to be inauthentic and to be vicious or to be incontinent or variations along that moral spectrum, then um, there will be consequences to that and you will experience them. It has nothing to do with him trying to, you know, get you to love yourself and to, you know, if anything, ancient philosophers are about you facing the reality of who you are as a person and striving to be better because they're trying to show you that if you do try and be better, there's so much to be had um, by doing so. So, yeah, that's uh, my view on the social justice warriors. Um, so... Uh, the one respect in which I'll say that Aristotle, again, doesn't agree with uh, Socrates is that he doesn't think that virtue is sufficient for happiness, as I've mentioned. He also thinks that you need things like health, reputation, a bunch of other things to, to be happy. But insofar as virtue is necessary, it means that you can't be happy without it. So unless you have virtue... Just, just a quick one, Dion, just to wrap that whole point up. The real philosophers shut they, they, they shut up and they got on with life. The fake people that try to say like I'm better than thou art, they try to make this whole they make try to make it all about themselves. And they were they were the ones like pronouncing the the loudest how good and how virtuous they were. While yeah. the real philosophers they kept quiet and they just got on with it. Is yeah. that the kind of, if I have to sum it up roughly, would that be a correct assumption? Well, I don't know. I mean, look, philosophers at that time were also aiming, so the academy was um, Plato's um, creation. And a big part of it was to, to try and, and um, perpetuate what, their thinking was to to the yeah, populace. Yeah, but, but that was the forum back then. The forum was this open yes. area where it's a battle of ideas. So I get that they would be very verbal about it. But other people that embodied it tried to do the same. But I think they weren't ballsy enough to actually go to the forum per se. But they will walk mm. around to their neighbors and to their friends Absolutely. and just be like, yeah, I am the embodiment people. of this. And it That's just why. like we get the social justice warriors now yeah, <laughs> on Twitter, say, they were the verbal say, embodiment of that back then. Sorry. Yeah. Go on. So I would say I would say that the the social justice warriors for me at this point are the equivalent of the sophists in the early dialogues in Plato, where 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 Socrates actually like they proclaim to know things, and Socrates comes to them and actually and starts poking holes in what they're saying, and at the end of the conversation, they actually don't have an answer at all. And for me, that's kind of the equivalent in the sense that, from my experience, um, social justice warriors are not particularly receptive to reason. And um, when things don't go their way, then they just they they just pull the, that that rabbit out of the hat that says, "Oh, what is reason? There's no such thing as reason." There's yeah, no they they switch over to postmodernism immediately. So, yeah, I don't, I don't have time. Like, for that. let's go on. <laughs> that's all nights. Topic so, for another time. Okay, so then we turn to Epicurus, and Epicurus is is famous for being the hedonist, except that he's not really. So that's what's hilarious so, about. So it. hedonist that's, for for the audience members that don't know is the absolute pursuit of pleasure above anything yeah. else. So there's psychological hedonism, and then there's um, what's it called? 
You just made this. There's a pub that's called ethical that. ethical hedonism. Okay, so psychological hedonism is that you basically have this. It's an empirical claim that says that people do pursue pleasure above all else. Yeah. And the an ethical hedonism is to say that we should pursue pleasure above all else. Yeah. So obviously a lot's going to hang on how you cash out pleasure, right? Because again, like, you know, what you take that term to mean is going to fucking dictate everything else about what you think about. I love that you put hedonism and dictate into the same sentence. And fuck, which is good, right? (laughs) Yeah, I I, like, we'll have an episode about hedonism, like, Full disclosure, I was a mm. full-on hedonist at one stage in my life. Like I my highest pursuit was absolute pleasure. And mm. and then I switched from that and that like fuck where's purpose? Yeah. And then 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 after that, eventually I got to purpose. And and for me, the highest pursuit now is 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 purpose and knowledge. They're kind of like the mm. two highest things that I to, but that's a whole different conversation for another yeah, day. Yeah, no, we'll 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 do that because that will be especially in relation to the fire levers. We should we should do that conversation. Um. Okay. So when it comes to Epicurus, he thinks that pleasure is the only intrinsic good, and pain is the only intrinsic bad. But obviously, it's going to depend on what he thinks pleasure is. And so he distinguishes between desires and he thinks that they are groundless desires. And these are sort of egotistical desires that are like, you know, I want to be famous. I want to be rich. I want to be like all those things that are like. All the things you can ask the Lotto Commission or Genie for. Basically. Yeah. And then he's got the natural desires and these split further into necessary and merely natural. So your necessary natural desires are going to be things like when you're thirsty you need to drink and that usually has to do with satisfying some sort of pain so you when you feel thirsty it's a kind of pain that you're feeling and you satisfy it this also this sounds a much more than maslow's hierarchy of needs there's a kind of natural order to what you need and then maybe later it might be a bit more aspirational so for those that know what maslow's hierarchies of needs are it's like you start with the physiological needs. Um, and it's, it's going to get there. It's going to get there, not in the same way, but I'll, I'll tell you I think In a different way, relate. go. Yeah, that, that's I'll interesting, tell you go. I think it might relate. And then you've got the merely natural uh, natural desires, and these are things like, you know, I want to eat a, food from Woolies. I mean, I don't need to do that, but, like, that would be pleasurable to do that. Um, <laughs> uh, do you really want to pay uh, 50 rand for two pieces of kale? Do you know? That's my question to well, you. I don't eat from Woolies, but like it wouldn't be the worst thing ever if I could. Fucking hell. I'll send you some organic wine from Woolies. Same uh, price as any other wine, but it's organic. So it's so great for you. Okay, but the ultimate goal for Epicurus, and this is where you start realizing he's not a hedonist in the way that we normally think about these things. Because for him, the ultimate goal is to be free from pain, is to be free from mental and physical distress. And he calls the state ataraxia, which is tranquility. And this state is a, it's not a neutral state, it's a positive state. But it's basically where you, you actually s- seek to achieve that place where you are free from those things 
And in that regard, he then thinks that virtue, being virtuous, is the best way to get to that place of ataraxia. Um, so I'm going to give you an example just to illustrate. So he talks about in the principal doctrines, he talks about justice. So he thinks that you should be just because if you're unjust, it's not bad per se, but it's bad because of the fear that arises from the expectation that one will be punished for your misdeeds. And then he says that it's impossible for someone who violates the compact to be confident that he will escape detection. And so in that way, he grounds justice uh, as the need to avoid distress. So in that so, case... So, so that, yeah? So, sorry, there, there's a big emphasis on consequences of your own actions. Yes. And the, yeah. and the, and the more cuck you or, or bad things you do, um, oh. karma is going to eventually catch up to you and, and decapitate you. If in a matter yeah, of speaking, also, it does remind you of a Buddhist sort of vibe because you're like, yeah. you know, the idea is that you're not, you're not a slave to certain desires that are like, I want to be rich, I want to be wealthy, I want to be respected. What you're aiming for is essentially this ability to be calm and be tranquil and to not be in pain because of stupid desires that you might have that have actually nothing to do with your well being. And even when it comes to the virtues, he then reads them as ways in which you could be free of distress. Um, and so in that sense, he's not a typical hedonist. Because most people portray Epicurus as the hedonist that's like, you know, at these excessive parties where you drink wine and you have orgies and you eat cake. and it's, But that's not what Epicurus is really about. If anything, he actually advocated for eating in moderation drinking in moderation, essentially, because it, think of it this way, if you indulge in drinking, you're going to have a hangover the next day. That's hardly the same as being free from distress. You're actually putting yourself into a lot of distress by indulging in the moment. So in that sense, it's not the common notion, understanding of hedonism that we normally have. Okay. Makes sense. Um, so then when it comes to, this is what I like about Epicurus. So <clears throat> he didn't have any delusions about, you know, the, the world having meaning and there being like fortune coming your way and there being like the plans of the gods and all this stuff. He was very much, he was an atomist in the sense that in terms of his metaphysical theory, he just believed that they were just atoms that were like, bumping up against each other, and it was all pretty materialistic and pretty random. It had nothing to do with there being a greater meaning. And in that context, he just thought that, look, if fortune has no meaning, because it's not like there was a big plan, then you shouldn't care about what fortune has in mind. You should just, like, you should just live your life to the best that you can, because you can't control that, because there's no meaning to it. It just is what it is. So in that respect, he so for Epicurus, it was also very much again about locating where are your irrational beliefs about nature, about yourself, and all of that, and saying that if you actually dispensed with those irrational beliefs, you would be a lot more resilient because you would be able to handle, you know, in the case of the world, things not turning out the way you wanted them to because you'd know that there's no bigger plan. It's just what happened. Stuff just happens. So just 
it's not because you are a bad person or because the other person was a bad person. It's just what happened. So, so interesting that you, you say that. Uh, Newton is a great example of this. He had so many great theories that he brought, the theory of gravity and everything, but, but eventually there came a um, pinnacle to what he thought he was capable of. And then he also resigned himself like, this is above me, only God knows this. And he kind of took two steps back. Also in a way that's a cop-out because he just thought it was above his abilities. But given what he's done, if he would have mm. just like had a different mindset, he would have actually like cracked it eventually and 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 broke through that. But because he resigned to that fatalist kind of thing, like you know what, it's fate. I can't. Uh, this is not in my hands. He resigned his mm. his agency to a higher being or to something. Again, he's transferring mm. internal locus of control externally to a to a divine being or entity, and he copped out. <laughs> we we could have seen much more of him if he didn't mm. do that. And we see this in a lot of times in history, repeating itself where someone just resigns himself to an external locus of control, be it a deity or their own ability. Uh, they're just like, fuck it, I can't do this. And bam, mm. it's like, mm. God, guys, you're selling yourself short. You, you did yeah. such good work. And for me, it's like one of my, uh, it's not my big regret. It's just like, if these people actually just never went that way, like what else could they have accomplished? And that's always fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, I don't, in that case, I don't know if you're going to like the Stoics very much, but uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> um, so Epicurus also thought that we shouldn't think anything of death, which is his famous argument that death has nothing to us because if you, all you care about is pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure, the lack thereof, then when you're dead, there's no such thing. There's no having pleasure or not having it. So why do you care about it? You're not around. So why would it in any way so weigh on your Consciousness cease to exist. There's no heaven, no hell, no afterlife, there's no nothing. reincarnation. You're not, you're not, and you're not experiencing anything. So why should you fear it? Because it's not well, like let's, let's go to, Let's go to the Stoics then. Um, and, 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 oh, wait. And, and, no, wait a minute. Almost, oh, oh, you're not done. My bad. I'm almost done. I'm almost, I'm almost done. Just, just hang on. So, and and for a lot of people, their anxiety and their fear and depression comes from that belief about what happens when they die. Does it have meaning? All the stuff. But if you start just accepting the fact that my life is all that has meaning, and after I die, there's not going to be anything. So I don't need to be anxious about it because I'm not going to experience it. I'm not going to be there then again it opens up the capacity for you to be to bounce back faster because you again you don't cave to certain feelings because your reason is telling you there's no reason to do that there's no it's not rational to give into those emotions because they I, have no meaning i like to think of it like this every day i'm dying every day that i live is a day less that i have and every day i'm dying slowly and I have the choice moving forward, what I'm doing with the little time I have left. Just because I'm now 30 or 20 something doesn't mean I will have a 60 or 80 years left. Exactly. So you have to decide kind of fatalistically like, okay, what's inevitable in this life? Death. Death comes for us all. It, it doesn't mm -hmm. spare anyone or anything. Uh, so you have to make peace with that. And then every day you live, it's like, review that day and it's like is this really kind of how i want to do it and and, and improve yeah. with increments um yes. 
Yeah, that that's kind of how I see it. It's a strange way to look at it, but that's that's kind of how yeah. I look at it. I I do a daily review, and I'm like, did I did I really do everything as good as I could? Like, yeah, like that's yeah. a day less that I have left, and 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 time is the one thing you can never recuperate. Like, time is the one thing that's truly finite mm-hmm. in our existence, and and, mm. and people need to realize that. Like, yeah. money, wealth. Yeah, health is also finite, uh, but but that's very much linked to time because the older we mm, get, the more exactly. fucked we get. Yeah, so exactly. so so health, health and and time are the truly two finite things that I I can see in my life. That's that's really it's a very limited resource, and once yeah. that runs out, you're yeah that you can't purchase more <laughs> unless you develop a time machine. But good luck with that because it requires a lot of fucking energy. Uh, so you, like you need a black holes kind of energy to pull that off. So cheers to you wherever you are will ever um, get that running. Sorry, dear I derailed you. No, no. And then the final thing that I do want to mention because all ancient philosophers do mention this at some point is the value of friendship. So for them, the ability to be resilient is is made easier so if you want to be more resilient cultivating friendship is a very important part of that and so again i'll turn to aristotle because you know he's my hero that friendship is not just like facebook friends that's not friendship he actually distinguishes between different kinds of friendship and for him the only friendship that matters is not the one where you know you get some sort of pleasure out of it or because you know they serve some sort of end of yours but it's because you both actually develop each other in terms of your virtue. So it's a, he calls it a virtuous friendship. And that's the friendship most people don't want. Uh, it's the hardest kind of friendship, but it's also the most meaningful kind of friendship. It's Is it a friend that calls you out at your bullshit and also a friend that, that pushes you almost like a healthy kind of rival? Yes. We're always kind of testing the waters and moving yeah. upward in an yes. intellectual and a fuck career capacity yeah both of you are like this yeah. the whole time it's but you're also calling each other out in your bullshit you're like yeah. you know what what you did now what you said to this guy or to your wife tonight mm-hmm. was not good like you need to work on yourself man yeah because people don't value truth you and i've had this discussion many times like yeah absolutely. people can't stand or take truth um that they, they like a good fuzzy ride and the moment you call them out and and you and i both agree like we call each other out on everything. Like if, if you fuck up or I fuck up, we're like, I think yeah. you you did that that thing again. Yep. But we're happy for it because like at that moment you feel you feel vulnerable, you feel enraged, you feel like, why is this happening? Mm-hmm. Or why do I perpetuate this thought? And then you look inwards and then eventually you overcome it and you move forward. Yeah. That, also, that's growth. That's and also progress. We have, like as a result, we have, we have conflict with each other. So like if we call each other out, it's not like we just like both of us are pretty feisty. So it's not like we just take it and roll over. We do we do argue with each other. We fight with each other. But that's the point is that you actually strengthen each other. It's not about no relationship with having is comfortable. And I think that that's a big, big distinction that people need to clarify for themselves is, do they want a comfortable relationship or do they want a meaningful one? And meaningful relationships are not comfortable. And But at this, this flip side of that is that it's the most pleasure and the most joy you'll ever feel in life is when you find someone you can have that meaningful relationship with. And that's 
counts for romantic partners, friendships, even colleagues. Like, if you're not willing to have that struggle with someone, it's not meaningful. It's basically just another Facebook friend and you can write them off and they're not going to care and you're not going to care. Yes. Sorry, so like I have to push for stoicism and the stoic. Sorry. Yeah. I see we, uh, we... Okay. So um, when it comes to the stoics, for them, the big distinction is that they do actually think that virtue is sufficient for happiness. So they don't think you need any other external goods. They actually regard those external good, goods as indifferent. So even something like... Summarize the Stoics and from what era are they from and what's their kind of commonalities. I, I, if I'm not mistaken, these are warrior philosophers. They actually went through war. They tasted all war. They, all of them did. So, so, like, so all the philosophers they're, did. They're all in war. There's a lot of wars back then. So they all no, no, but, but who did they actively all participate or is it the Stoics that actually were actually Some of them, actively involved in war? Warfare? So Socrates, Socrates was definitely a soldier. Um, Plato, Aristotle, not so much. Epicurus, I think maybe no. Stoics, some of them, yes. Some of them, not. Depends on who you're talking about. I didn't actually do such a deep dive. So, but the Stoics embody... Uh, are the Stoics the ones that embody the warrior virtues the most? Or am I spitballing you? I don't, know, I don't know how you assess that. Like, they all embody virtues. It's just the term... The only respect in which they disagree is how do they think virtue relates to happiness? How do they think uh, knowledge relates to virtue? What do they think the soul splits up into? And so, so what, are, sets, what 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 makes the Stoics different? If if you have so to like put it in a so for me, the biggest issue, the biggest thing about the Stoics is that they think they they're they're quite rare in this regard. So they think that virtue is sufficient for happiness. So basically, they don't think you need any external goods. So they don't think that to be happy, you need health, you need wealth, you need reputation, you need beauty, you need any of it. They really are hardcore in terms of thinking that it doesn't matter what happens to you. Like if you're disabled, if you lose an arm in war, if you lose all your children, literally they think that you can still be happy. And that's a big part because they still think that virtue is something that... So they don't actually think that you, when you're feeling certain emotions that rebel against reason, it goes to the non-rational part of the soul. They actually think those are just false judgments. So if you properly understood your reality, like you wouldn't even feel those negative emotions. You would basically just feel certain positive emotions. And like one of those is they, they list them, but like one of them is joy and it's a very specific, so you're, you're going to have to like go and read up on it. It's like specific emotions that they think are, are indicative of experiencing like in their terms, like good emotions, not the bad ones, the ones that are, that, that essentially are indicative of false judgments. And their biggest thing about the, like judging what's going on is that they, they take the, the ability to reason very seriously. And I think that Whatever emotion you're feeling, you have to dig down to what's the root belief of that feeling. And if you were completely rational, you could counter that belief. And then you would no longer feel like that. And that's the, and so it's the Stoics, for people who don't know, that's basically the, the, 
starting point of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a modern day phenomenon. And it's also one of the most successful therapy strategies that we've had. And it comes from stoicism. And they also have, because of how they think about the world, they also think that you need to live in accordance with nature. And what that essentially means is that reason is the thing that structures how nature plays itself out. So it doesn't matter what happens, you have to have faith in the idea that this is reason playing itself out. And so you need to learn to accept what's happening to you. Um, and in that respect, it's also quite radical because it's like, doesn't matter what's going on in your life, like there's a reason for it. And you need to trust that you can use this opportunity to grow. And so they do actually have some strategies, like they actually have a lot. One of them is, for example, you need to, to, to basically assess why you think what you think. You need to keep a journal and every day write in that journal to identify what are the core beliefs that inform your emotions that you think hold you back. And then you can assess like how, why are those beliefs false and problematic? And through a rational interrogation. So, so it's, it's a journal. It's a journal to remind yourself, like, why you're getting in your own way. We, yes. we spoke earlier about um, trauma that's been inflicted on you throughout your life, and and that affects you moving forward. There, there are blockers yeah. for you achieving your ultimate success and whatever you want to achieve. Those past traumatic events, and 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 again, you, you mentioned the, the 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 psychological benefit of of just writing or, or speaking about some things it, mm. it's a good out and, yes. and and a lot of people don't realize it or know it um if you if you write or you speak to people about what's bothering you that that's a hell of a unblocker you actually move mm -hmm. forward in a way that you would never believe um especially if it's people that you trust or a let's call it a therapist in this case if you have no one else that which is yeah. quite sad but yeah. but let's let's play let's, let's let's play the devil's advocate there and then there's there's newer treatments um some are a bit more fringy and and, and stuff i won't go into the details um but 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 to each their own at the end of the day i think i think writing and talking ultimately leads you to a better place um so that and you don't they yeah, have specific like like sort of um higher order sort of thinking that you can apply so one of them is that they actually recommend that you think to yourself what if i so again testing this idea that you can be happy without those indifferent goods which is like health beauty reputation wealth all those things we think we need they would say like consider that you lose all of that so consider the things that you think are valuable in your life and imagine those things not being there like how would you feel? How would you react? What would you do? And they actually encourage you to think negatively and think through what does that mean so that you can, over time, build the resilience to be able to face that if it were to happen, which is very counterintuitive. Most people would be like, that's terrible. How can you tell me I should think negatively? But they Let, do actually recommend it. Can we go into this? Because 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 yeah. I think there's there's two aspects to this that I I've realized to myself. Um, <clears throat> taking two steps back and appreciating what I have, being like, okay, cool, let's bring it down to zero. Like mm -hmm. I take myself for example, 
I've got a gorgeous ocean view every day when I wake up. Um, I'm living at, at the south coast of South Africa, which is a beautiful area. Mm. So if I have to take two steps back, I'm living in a gorgeous environment. It's, it's great to be here, and I'm so happy to be here. Uh, but I, but you do sometimes take it for granted. So you have to take two or 50 steps back sometimes to realize what you have and what you've achieved and appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so, so that's, that's the one aspect, appreciating what you have. And, um, I've lost my trail of thought, but, but you can go on and I'll, I'll okay. think about what the other one was. Okay. Tell me when you, when you remember. So then the other part is that I've said already that for them, it's about, living in accordance with nature and in, in that respect they think you also need to honor how nature plays itself out and you need to trust that reason is essentially structuring the nature of reality and so if there's something that's happening to you you need to it's better it's to just accept it rather than try and fight it because whenever you try and fight it it's making things worse and i think that I'm not going to say, like, if someone loses their child, you know, that was meant to be or, you know, that was fine. I mean, that's a terrible fucking thing to, to to say to someone. But at the end of the day, there's truth to this idea that you can't change it. It is what it is. And fighting it has never helped anyone, ever. And it's not about, like, just... Again, it's not about you not feeling the emotions intensely or needing time to work through it or anything like that. But it is about just understanding that reality is what it is. You can't fight it. So you need to find a way to come to terms with it. Um, and yeah, that's the one part. Sorry, do you know the, the, the other thing, and I'll make it quick and sweet and quick and yeah. slick. Is that overtly positive attitude? Like you always need to be positive and think positive. It's bullshit. No, it's bullshit. counter if, if anything, it's counterproductive. Because no. sometimes yeah. you have to go back to the drawing board. You have to indulge these negative feelings and go like, okay, yeah. where am I now and where am I going? And, and then you have to acknowledge like, fuck, I haven't done everything right. Yeah. I fucked up a few times. Acknowledge that. Acknowledge the darkness, and 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 if if you weren't your best, that's also fine. But you're able to move forward from that, and and you can move forward. That's the thing. It's it's not a death fucking sentence that now you're going to sink your fucking submarine here. It's like I okay, just, cool. Go just to give just to give people hope. I mean, I had I did recently look at a TED talk, and it was about a woman who's studying resilience. Uh, like contemporary uh, psychological studies and she she lost a child while she was studying this topic and she was then told by by specialists that for the next five years she and her family are going to basically go through the worst kind of hell and she didn't find anything that they said helpful in terms of how they were supposed to like cope with what was happening. And so she then decided like, you know what? Like I've been studying this for however many years. I'm actually gonna apply my own strategy. So like Kata, I'll send you the link to that talk and you can put it below this this conversation because 
I don't want people to think that even when it comes to something as terrible as losing a child, which is probably one of the worst things that can ever happen to someone, that I'm blasé about that and thinking, yeah, you know, just think of it as like, you know, it's nature's plan. Like, fuck that. Like, it's literally the worst fucking thing that could happen to a person. So I think that even so, this TED Talk would be helpful to some people to think yeah. about how do you actually go about overcoming something like that and and i thought it was a is a really good talk so yeah so i'll send you that link and you can Not you and i approves this message <laughs> okay then yeah, in I'm closing tough, i'm a tough because we have to we have to close up in the next five to six minutes so yeah no i'm done i'm basically done so then the other thing is um you need to focus on yourself so essentially try and focus on the stuff you're doing right so try and focus on the, the role that you're playing, where you're actually doing it well, the roles that you have in other people's lives where you could be doing it better. So essentially try and, try and hone in on your life and think about how could I do these things better? Because even that is a way of building up your resilience in terms of thinking about like, what am I doing wrong and what could I be doing better? And that, that feedback loop, even in terms of people feeling that you are there for them, you are caring, etc., etc., helps you to be more resilient when bad shit comes your way so that you don't descend into, I'm a shit human being, I should be better, why am I so weak, etc., etc. You do need that element of self-confidence, and that's a way to kind of tackle that. Um, and then this is the best thing I ever learned, because I actually went through CBT therapy. So I think for me, the biggest lesson I got out of it is that it's not your experiences that harm you. It's your opinions about your experiences that harm you. So for someone like me, I'm incredibly self-critical. So I'll sit and go, like, if I do something bad, I'll sit and go, I could have done it better in so many different ways. Why the hell didn't I do that? I'm such a terrible person. So it's not the event. It's that everything that I tell myself, either in anticipation of the event or once the event has occurred and I fucking go off like a fucking hamster on a wheel and i just like rehearse we're myself. the same in that regard we're very self-critical I'm, I'm i'm the same like you are i i fire myself down so many times i just like shoot the gun or mm. release the missile launcher or, or the minigun and i just shoot myself into shreds yeah and it's it's not it's not useful you have to eventually come to a point where you say like okay guy or girl in your case or, mm -hmm. or, 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 or gender neutral uh, being, or whatever you identify. I'm not a girl. I'm a woman. For fuck's <laughs> Sorry, sorry. I'm just part of the Hollywood pedophilia ring. Um, you have to come to a point where you actually ask yourself, like, okay, cool. Like, what's my relationship with myself? Like, yeah. and all of us have a very unhealthy one with ourselves. Like, we look after our dogs. We look after our children. We look after our family. What's that internal locus? Like, how am I treating that person? And and yeah. I'm I'm there. I'm I'm treating myself very shitty because, like you and I mentioned, I'm like the biggest critic of myself ever in the universe. I don't give that fucker a second to breathe. The moment he says something, I kick him down, and I'm just like, fuck you. And it's the worst thing you can do to yourself. You shouldn't yeah. be like that. Yeah. So and so then, so, yeah. And that, the, that's the my, final. The final thing is just, you know, again, like we said earlier, recognize that as an opportunity for growth. So when bad things happen to you, 
you have two choices ultimately you can either succumb to those things and become the worst version of yourself or you can try and rise above it and i can say that any day of the week even if you just try and you maybe don't succeed in being the best person you can be just trying to be not the worst version of yourself is still better it's still a win and so that perspective in this way the stoics try and say like take a different perspective on what's happening and in that way you can maybe over time it's not like a again it's not an overnight thing it's over time you can convince yourself and habituate yourself to react in a certain way to adversity and that's resilience that's basically developing the strategies to bounce back from that shit that happens to you and in this day and age i think we need that more than ever because so many generations haven't really been taught that and we've lost that ancient wisdom that's been sitting there for over 2000 years it's absolutely ridiculous that we still we don't still actually try and harness that to live better lives i i i do think the the grandparents and great grandparents actually might have embodied that because they had harder lives yeah and they tried absolutely. to they 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 tried to actually embody that as much as they can but but from their grandparents to great parents to current parents i mean convenience is king people just want to buy their children mcdonald's and quick foods and fast absolutely. foods then they get obese and they've got high blood pressures and parents are just like oh fuck what's this like i'm just gonna buy pills it's mm. like no start with the diet and start with mm. how you treat your children like like look after them or don't have children at all because you're incapable of being a, a good parent but people don't think like that they don't think yeah, and we will we you and i will be talking about that on the 7th of december whether you should have kids or not yeah that's gonna be a fun one do you know in closing is there anything else you want to add to this conversation are we closing it off do you want to add some wisdom and then i'll close off as well yeah Go. so i just want to say like i think that um from my perspective as someone who has studied ancient philosophy for quite a long time i think that it still has a lot of wisdom to offer and i think even more so because i think that in a lot of ways the the periods they went through were a lot more trying than what we go through now i mean it's different but i think in a lot of ways it's still exceptionally trying so i think that if you want to have some perspective on what you need to teach your kids and what's important in life just for your own sake just even read Marcus Aurelius's meditations I mean even that's a start like just it it really is about just developing your soul and making it stronger and I think that there's the every ancient philosopher has advocated for that in one way or another and you will always have something to learn there so it's worth pursuing my 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 final thought is um a lot of people think that the ancient times weren't as hard. It was much harder than now. We're living in the best era ever. When it comes to medical technology, when it comes to affluence, when it comes to everything, we are much better than we used to be. Dollar for dollar, pound for pound, if you measure mm -hmm. ancient civilizations to what we have now, we've got clean water, we've got sewage systems that are fucking working. Back in the day, you used to throw our shit literally into the streets um, when you look at any old school movie, they have the bucket, they throw something that's shit and piss, by the way. And um, we, we, we're living in the greatest era. We've got the greatest medical technology and everything else. 
if we are looking for victimhood and for other shit, it is because we've got no other problems anymore and we are just internally collapsing. And that's my theory about it. I think we are internally collapsing. Some some societies are, not, not so much others. And I think we have to look inward and ask ourselves, are, is things really as bad as we say it is? Or is this just an illusion or distraction? And um, I think everyone can draw their own conclusions on that. And mm. on that note, I want to thank Dr. Dionne Hardy for, <laughs> for attending this session and, and, and embodying her wisdom on us. And uh, we'll probably have many more of these sessions. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me here. It was really a pleasure. Thank you, Dr. DNA. I appreciate your time. Cheers, everybody. Have a great week and a great month and an evening. And yeah, Jesus, it's the end of the year. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>